You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. How you doing, Red Door? Good. Glad we got that out of the way. Hey, I tell you, I, I don't know if I've told you enough how, um, how much I love being one of your pastors here at this church. I mean, I really, I really love having this role. I, tell you, I, I, I think it's a, a privilege and a gift from God to me. And I say that in the midst of uh, the church world that I live in where there are record numbers of pastors quitting and record low numbers of uh, candidates going into ordained ministry. And so in the midst of all that, I'm reminded of just how great it is to have this role. And not to be frivolous, but um, one of the benefits of having this role is that I avoid a lot of small talk, which is it's something I value greatly, that is not having to do the small talk. Because I don't like small talk, I'm not good at small talk, and I think small talk is a waste of all of our time. And so it's great because, um, because so often I will initiate the small talk with you on the way out. For example, this morning I might say, hey, um, thanks for coming, something, you know, meaningless like that and and you guys you guys will turn around and say like just drop some enormous bombshell on me in response to that like you know just so you know this week I'm um I'm having uh surgery on incurable cancer and my um my marriage is falling apart and uh and my kids won't speak to me and like, that'll be your response that happens all of the time I'm just like whoa that's good stuff, right? That's the real, that's real stuff, real life. And um, what I've noticed is within those conversations, I, I have, I think, picked up on it, this growing sense among us once we get past the small talk and talk about the, the, the way that we really feel about the world and the, and, and the, the stuff of real life that matters, I've noticed this sort of increasing, I guess, anxiety about the, the world around us, about the trajectory that our culture is on. This increased sense that the world is getting darker. In fact, to directly quote one of you from a couple of weeks ago, you said, your sense is that the world is dark and it's getting darker and you can't see any way that that trajectory will change. That's a heavy, that's a, that's a heavy thought to have. I spoke to one, another one of you recently who is um, younger and unmarried without kids, and you said to me, you're kind of questioning whether pursuing marriage and having children is a good idea in this current context. Like, is it a good idea to bring children into this dark world that we live in? Man, that's a heavy thought. That's coming out of a deep sense of despair about the current climate that we're living in. And by current climate, I mean more than just global warming. I mean like the very culture that we're living in that seems to be turned against God's purposes, turned against God's work of salvation. And I spoke just this last week, I caught up with a very senior leader in the Anglican church, very, very senior, who 
said to me that the conversations he's having with other very senior Anglican leaders are all around like the impending doom of, in the Anglican Church. Like this, we're on the precipice of this great disaster, especially as within the church there are all these kind of quarrels about blessing same-sex marriages and things of that nature that, that seem to be putting a, an, an indecent amount of pressure on the unity of the church. So all like this it seems like the air that we're breathing is 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 a kind of coming out of this anxiety and an attitude of despair as we look at the way things are around us. So here's I mean does that resonate at all with you guys? Even if you're not seeing it, you're hearing it. I think one of the things that we want to do in this these four weeks looking at the topic of renewal, revival. One of the things that I think God wants us to do is he wants us to ask the question, could it be that, could it be that it's really true that it gets darkest before the dawn? Could it be that it's because we find ourselves in this atmosphere of despair and darkness that this is the very time that God would choose to move in power and bring about renewal? That's the question we want to be asking ourselves. And if you're not yet asking it, I want you to start asking it. I would like us, far from having this kind of empty or naive optimism that even though things are really bad, God might do something good, rather for us to educate ourselves, and that's part of what I'm doing this morning, about the fact that it is in these very times throughout human history that God has chosen to move and to demonstrate his power. So this morning, all I'm going to do, and really I'm just trying to tee this up for Jimmy for the next three weeks where he's going to preach to us about revival, what I'm trying to do is just kind of show us that throughout human history, like we're going to go right back to Old Testament, we're going to go thousands of years back, in fact, pretty much to the beginning of the history of God's people, we're going to see that in the midst of darkness and despair, those are the very times that God raises up a few, a faithful remnant through which he brings about renewal, revival. And that's what changes everything. So you ready? We're going to work our way pretty quick through a whole bunch of history. I'm going to be turning up here and reading a whole bunch of quotes. And so it's going to be one of those mornings. Um, and so I just I, I implore you, stick with me as we work through this, because we're going to have to go fast and we're going to cover a lot of ground. But I hope it's clear in all of this what God might be choosing to do among us, this amazing Glorious work of renewal. So, to begin with, I want to look at, going back to the Old Covenant, going back to the the Old Testament, I want to look at some of the marks that you see of renewal right through the Old Testament. Whenever you see God move like this, to bring about out of darkness and despair and idolatry and spiritual um, Dryness. whenever God brings about the work of renewal, you tend to see these marks, all right? So here, let me go through, I think I've got eight of them. 
common marks of Old Testament renewal. Number one, they occurred in times of moral darkness. So if you have in mind that this picture that everything before 1950 was super spiritual and really Christian and moral and everyone minded their P's and Q's and everyone had good behaviour and kids were obedient and then, you know, in the last 50 years it's all gone to hell. Wrong, right? This is the thing that we need to know about renewal from the beginning or, in fact, anything to do with spiritual life. You can go back thousands of years, as we're going to do this morning, and you'll see that it's always been a boom and bust economy. There has always been periods of spiritual disaster and despair and darkness. Always. You know, there were times 3,000 years ago where kids disobeyed their parents. Not everyone was you know, a good church boy and girl wearing knitted vests and coming along every Sunday morning and singing hymns. It just was not the case and has never been the case. It's always been boom and bust. So first mark, if you look at all of these times of renewal, it should give us hope if we really believe that we're living in a time of darkness. They occurred in times of moral darkness. Number two, each began in the heart of an individual or a small group we call these people the faithful remnant who, who became the energising power behind it. And it's fascinating, you see, often the people that God chooses to begin this work are not the people you expect. They're not the guy up the front with the collar or even without the collar, right? They're, they're not the, the, the necessarily the people who have always been the most prayerful. Again, God uses, God chooses to move in the darkest moments and through the least likely people so that we'll see this really is God at work. This is not something contrived. This is not just an accident of history. All right, number three. Each revival rested on the word of God and most were the result of proclaiming God's word with power. Number four. All resulted, all of them, resulted in a return to worship of the living God. Byproduct of that, number five, all resulted in the destruction of idols. Right? And in some cases, it's literal idols, like pulling down golden calves, high places, temples to Baal. And in other cases, just like choosing to burn down anything that's coming between us and God. It's the same thing. All resulted in the destruction of idols. Number six, there was a marked separation from sin. Seven, the people returned to obeying God's laws. And number eight, there was a restoration of great joy and gladness. And yes, those two things go together. Despite what we might think in our gut, Returning to obedience happens together with restoration of joy and gladness. Because I'm convinced of this, everything that God commands us is for our good. It's for our joy. So there's some some marks, and that's from a survey of the old covenant, but my point this morning is that is true, was true of of the people of God then, and remains true 
in our experience today. So I want us to be looking for some of those things, to be coming out of this move of God that we sense he wants to do among us. Let me show you in microcosm this cycle that has always happened in the midst of God's people, a cycle of, of, of God bringing about renewal out of deadness, out of dryness. And you can see it. It's phenomenal. You can see it in the space of a few verses in Judges chapter 2. All right, so here we go. Judges 2, 7. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. And during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, they had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Praise the Lord. A couple of verses later, verse 11 to 12, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals, like foreign gods, and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them, They angered the Lord. And then it comes full circle, this cycle that you see over and over again. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, right, that that faithful person that he was going to work through or people, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. So the people of God know that they're the people of God. They worship him as God. Then they fall away, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to go to other gods. And then in the midst of that, God raises up a judge. He raises up a, a, an individual or a group, of small group of people, a faithful remnant through whom he brings rescue, redemption, blessing, renewal, revival. You see this again in 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm not going to go into it, but it's the same pattern. And the response of Samuel in that case is, if you guys are serious about wanting renewal, if you have really experienced darkness in its full force and have tasted the the meat and drink of idolatry and found their despair, if if you have experienced that, then lay aside everything that's holding you back from true worship. Burn down your idols. Return to the Lord with fasting and weeping and repentance. And in the midst of that, God brings about renewal. The point is that in the midst of this present darkness, right, when you look around and you see both in the world and in the church, don't fall into that error. Like the church is good, but the world out there, they're really they're screwing up. No, it's the world and the church. When you, when you experience this present darkness, the point of that darkness is to bring us to our knees. That's the gift of God in this present darkness. He brings us to this point so that we fall on our knees and we finally say, we have no hope but you. We've tried to contrive renewal and revival and we can't make it happen. 
We've, we've got the best worship bands. We've got the best lighting and smoke machines. We've got the best social media presence we can get. We've pumped millions of dollars into this church and we just can't make it happen. And so when we empty ourselves and debase ourselves and humble ourselves, it's then that God moves in power. This is how Mark Sayers says it in his great book on renewal. He says, renewal comes when we are sickened. When we are sickened by our false gods and the broken promises of our impotent idols and ideologies. When we are shattered by our striving and pathetic attempts at saving ourselves. Then we can fall into the arms of Christ to be remade without caveats or compromise. We have a sense that this is what God wants to do in our midst. He wants to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can then be renewed. So I want to talk a little bit now. It's going from what are the the kind of marks of of Old Testament renewal and how does that kind of bleed into the present day and how does it apply to this present darkness that we find ourselves in? What's, what can we do? How can we participate, acknowledging that this is a work of God beyond our contrivance? What can we do to prepare the way for renewal? I think a really good answer to that question happened right here in this little corner on Friday night. We had this prayer meeting where the whole focus of the prayer meeting was on repentance. That's the beginning. The beginning of renewal is not figuring out how to run a really good event and get a speaker who's really good at communicating the gospel. And, and like, it doesn't happen that way. It begins with repentance. In some ways, it's the opposite of that. It's not making ourselves as big as we can be. It's actually making ourselves as small as we can be. Humbling ourselves, throwing ourselves on God's mercy. And it was beautiful to see that on Friday night, this just collective sense that we need to repent. Let me read you a couple of passages where this is communicated. Okay, so in 2 Chronicles... In chapter 7, it says this, God says, If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. This is God saying, I'm going to give you Darkness. I'm going to give you drought, actual or spiritual, right? I'm going to give you these judgments so that you will be brought to your knees. We're participating in a little prayer movement at the moment where we are praying for a break in the drought, relief for farmers around the nation. But the beginning of that is rooted in repentance. And it always has been for God's people. It's rooted in repentance. 
Let me read again from Joel chapter two. It's even more clear. He says, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Like even now in the midst of what was then a very dark period in God's, in the, in, in the history of God's people, they seem to be as far away from him as they could be. He says, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning. I love this line. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. You can tear your clothes as an outward expression of inward repentance, but there better be a rending of the heart that happens at the same time. Otherwise, you're just putting on a show. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and He relents from sending disaster. So you have this cycle beginning with the coming to the end of ourselves, expressed in desperate Repentance, throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and then waiting, waiting for him to respond with compassion, faithful love. This has always been the way, this has always been the church's perspective, particularly when it comes to those who God raised up as that faithful remnant, those revivalists that he has worked through through the centuries. One of those was a guy named Charles Finney. Here's what he said about preparing the way for a revival, right? If you're on board with this, you'd love to see renewal in our midst. Here's his recommendation. Charles Finney was asked where revival begins. He answered, I draw a circle around myself and make sure everything in that circle is right with God. Which prompts the question, if we have yet to see revival fire fall in our nation, could the problem be within the circle? Could the problem be with you and me? Because here's the truth, and that's what the, the, the author, Anne Graham Lotz, what she's picking up on is this, this tendency we have in the church to see the present darkness and then to say everything outside of the circle is the problem. We're so dumb when it comes to this. We do this over and over and over again. Self-preservation, right? Self-justification. If only everything outside of the circle of me as an individual and us as a church would be renewed, then we would have some kind of utopia where actually the guy who knows more about this than anyone else or one of them says, actually, it's inside the circle that you need to begin. I draw a circle around myself and make sure everything in that circle is right with God. Another guy big figure in revival history named Evan Roberts. He was the leader of the Welsh revival in 1904 and 05. You might have heard about this massive move of God in the midst of a nation and a church that seemed to be completely dry and desolate. He just gets a sense that the, the, way, the, the avenue to revival is through personal repentance and he goes after it as a 26-year-old kid with no formal education, a minor. He says this, or the, uh, there's a commentary on this, where it says, throughout the Welsh revival, its leader, Evan Roberts, delivered a message that was simple, straightforward, and timeless. It became known as the four points, and this was the same four points that were preached in, in and out of churches around Wales. He says, in order to see revival in our land, 
Number one, confess all known sin. Number two, put away all doubtful things. That means all practices where you even have a a shred of doubt whether this is actually helping me become closer to the Lord. Is this a hindrance or is this a help? Put away all doubtful things and forgive everyone. Obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit, number three. And number four, publicly confess Christ as your Saviour. That was about as complex as it got. No mass marketing campaign, right? No multi-million dollar public revival meetings. It was just these four things. If the church does this and they do it from the heart, not just as an outward expression, but of something that's really going on within, then we will see revival and they did. And again, one last thing. Mark says, same book. He says, trace a revival back to its origins, whether it's the Welsh revival, the Scottish revival, the Great Awakenings in North America, the, what, the revival that happened in Melbourne last century. He says, trace a revival back to its origins and you will inevitably find a person or a handful of people moved by God. People who God took on a renewal process that first changed them before it changed others. They, that faithful remnant, they experience a microcosm of revival in their own lives. What, they, what, what eventually happens in the church and in the wider world first happens in them. I think you even see this kind of in the story of Jonah. So in Jonah, you have the greatest revival recorded in the Bible, right? You end up with all of Nineveh repenting and turning to the Lord. But before that happens, you have a a mini revival in Jonah. Happens in the boat with a bunch of pagan sailors who turn to God and sacrifice to him. And then in the fish, you have recorded his prayer of repentance. And so it happens there in microcosm before it happens in the grand scale in one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. Now, I'm, I'm really keen to talk about some of these patterns of renewal and revival that God seems to work through. He seems to have done it through history. You go back 3,000 years, you're talking about an entirely different culture. But I'm saying the pattern that applied in that case, it still applies today. It's not dependent on culture. This is a pattern that God works through. But I, I do want to say... That even though there are these patterns, and I believe God wants to in, is inviting us to participate in this recurring cycle, we need to remember that all of this is dependent on God's mercy and grace. He is the sovereign Lord of renewal. And so I really want us, and, and, and this is important, I really want us to avoid the trap of thinking that if we just mix the right ingredients, we're going to see mass awakening among them. Ultimately, it's in God's sovereign timing that these things 
come about. I promise this is the last quote I'm going to give you from this book, which I'm going to encourage you to buy throughout the next four weeks. But here's, here again is Mark Sayers, Reappearing Church. He says, I believe we must obey God's pattern of renewal, but there is no promise that we will see spectacular growth, he says. He says, dismayed by the affluence and lack of faith in my hometown of Melbourne, small groups of Christians began to pray for my city in the late 1850s. They persevered in prayer until God began to move with power and thousands came to faith. Yet, this breakthrough did not occur in its full strength until 50 years later. Many of those who prayed fervently for Melbourne to see revival never lived to see the results of their prayers. He says, and this is, this is what I want us to get, we accept that the role he has, the role God has for us, might be to contend for a move amongst a future generation. However, we also contend and pray he will move in our time, submitting to his will and wisdom as to how he wishes to move. That's the kind of attitude we need to have in all these things. A humble acceptance of the role that God is calling us to, trusting in him for the results. So there's how we might be able to prepare some of the ground, how we might be able to um, plough some of that hard ground and prepare it for harvest. Begins with repentance. It's utterly dependent on prayer. It recognises that God himself is the Lord of renewal. Now what does it look like? What, what should we be looking for as as signs that God is indeed bringing about renewal? What does it look like? Some of us, like me, are like genetically, it seems, disposed to look for new things. I love new things. I've got about 35 different way, routes to get home because I can't stand doing the same one two days in a row, right? I just, I, I love a different way of doing things. I love a new idea. I love a new way of doing things. And some of us are given, we're kind of predisposed to look for those things. And God might lead us into doing some new things and admits, I would love that. But here's what J.D. Greer says, and it should just be a reminder to us of how God often moves. He says, in times of renewal, the Spirit of God does not typically do a new thing. He simply pours out greater power upon the normal things faithful Christians are already doing. Prayers become more intense. Worship becomes more joyous. Repentance becomes more sorrowful. And the preached word becomes the pierced word. And he does more in a moment than we can accomplish in a lifetime. I love the sound of that. One way that we might sense that God is doing something among us is that we keep doing all the things that we have always felt convicted that we should do, but there is an empowering that changes everything. God's hand is on these things and it makes all of the difference. Tim Keller says that there are a few 
things that you should see and seem to happen whenever renewal comes about. He says in, in his book, Send a Church, three, three things that happen. Number one, sleepy Christians wake up. Just wait, just let me check. Yeah, there's one, one or two sleepy, sleepy Christians. I get it. Just listening to a guy out the front yell at you is put some people to sleep. I'm not talking about literal sleepiness. I'm talking about Christians who have just lost the fire of their first love. In the Chronicles of Narnia, it is the talking beasts who have faded back into being dumb beasts. Sleepy Christians wake up. They, they suddenly get it. Oh, that's right. All of life is all about Jesus. They get it. It goes from being a pithy saying on a sign to something lived out, embodied. And then he says nominal Christians, which is an oxymoron, nominal Christians realise they're not saved and turn to Christ. I've been turning up to church for 50 years every Sunday and it's been utter ritual, baseless, heartless ritual, and now I see. Now my heart has been wakened. Sleepy Christians wake up, nominal Christians turn to Christ and unbelievers are dramatically converted. The least likely person that you can name who will never, ever darken the door of the church must let much less open their heart to the, the ministry of the Spirit who would never bend the knee to the Lord Jesus. They get dramatically converted. All of those things happen in the midst of a renewal, in the midst of revival. One other thing to look for, you look for an, in, an increased boldness in God's people. Like uh, an increased optimism about what he can do and about what he can do through us. Here's, here's the truth. Most of us have a, are greatly optimistic about what God can do. He's God. Do what he likes. But there is a corresponding increase in my belief in what he can do through me. Like even me. So here's, I want to read you a couple of quotes from people who lived through the Scottish revival, one of the Scottish revivals. This is on the Isle of Lewis, I think. Have we got that? There we go. Yeah, in the Scottish revival on the Isle of Lewis, this is in the 40s and 50s of last century, one eyewitness said, night after night, people came, nobody asked the question, I wonder if anyone will be converted tonight. You sense that those who were praying were looking around and thinking, who is going to be saved tonight? In another account of the same revival, it was said, Another result of the revival was the boldness which we all had, boldness to witness, boldness to rejoice, boldness and such freedom to tell whoever was listening that we had given our lives to Christ. This was part and parcel of the revival. We were so full that we could not help but talk about it. We spoke to everyone about the Lord and it was so easy. Words just flowed so naturally wherever we were speaking to old or young, converted or unconverted. 
There's this increase, and we've been using this word for about 18 months now, that we want an increased expectancy. Not just theoretically about what God is capable of, but about what He is going to do and what He is going to do even through you. Even through the most normal Christian. I want to finish with an example from the New Testament, right? We've we've spent a lot of time in the old. We've dipped into a little bit of the modern history of revival. I'm going to read to you. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it's got comedy and it's got revival, two great things together, all right? So Acts chapter 19, you have this situation in Ephesus. You might remember we preached this a few years ago. Um, Acts 19, you have this, this episode of renewal. So I'm going to read a little bit. There's a few verses here, 8 to, eight to 20, I think. I want you to stick with me. This is where we're going to finish up. The historian Luke writes this. Paul entered the synagogue in Ephesus and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, that's what Christians, the Christian faith was called, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. That's funny. You can laugh at that. That's meant to be hilarious. All right. Now, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. This is repentance. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Lots of money. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So what do you have there? You have Renewal. You have revival in the midst of a pagan culture which is very dark, very anti-God. You have three months of Paul preaching boldly, which results in persecution. So we're not saying if we do this revival thing, everything's going to be fine and everyone will love us. No, it results in persecution and people hating them and disparaging them publicly. Then you have two years of preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. This is not a flash in the pan. This is not renewal weekend and then we see it all happen. This is not four-week series, right? This is a long 
long-term strategy. This is a long-term commitment to mission. Two years preaching the Word of God, just in season and out of season, God using the ordinary things and blessing them so that the result is miracles happen. Miracles accompany the ordinary work of proclaiming the gospel. You have this this genuine demonstration of power through Paul in verse 11 and 12. Then you have counterfeit counterfeit miracles in the case of the sons of Sceva and some of these other Jewish itinerant uh, exorcists. You tend to have that in revivals as well. You have both what God is doing and then you have all of the morons who try and hype it up and attach to it all of these crazy things that don't really need to be there, that actually detract from the genuine work that God is doing. That's happened. We need to own up to that and be aware that there's a tendency for the church to do that try and add something to what God is doing in his own power. And then you have Jesus glorified, verse 17, as people come and throw themselves on his mercy. There's public confession and repentance and a turning away from sin. And the result of all of it is that the word of God flourishes. That's what we call renewal, a flourishing of the gospel in our midst. That's revival. That's what we're praying for. That's what I'm going to pray for right now. Why don't you bow your heads with me? And if there is any resonance in what I'm saying, if there is anyone in our midst this morning or even those listening to this online, if there is any resonance, if there is any stirring in your heart, if there is any strange warming, perhaps you haven't thought deeply about these things before, but all of this is making really good sense. If this is something that, we, that you perceive that God wants to do in our time, in the midst of this present darkness, then please make yourself known. God loves to move through a small, unlikely, but faithful remnant. If that's you, then please join with me now as we pray. Father, our deep desire is to see you do a wonderful work among us. We don't want to waste our time playing church. So we ask that you would please guide us into this work of renewal. Please show us. I believe you've, you've opened the door to us this morning to see some of the patterns in which you work to bring about renewal and revival. Please show us the definite steps you want us to take. Lord, I feel like we want to say we believe. Help our unbelief. to the extent at which we are cold and hardened and cynical, please overcome that with a deep and resonant belief that you are here and that you want to move and that you're ready to pour out your blessing on us. Please begin with us. Please begin with me and then spread that 
blessing, that work of renewal, that work of revival spread it throughout this church, throughout the churches in this region that love the gospel of the Lord Jesus, throughout the community at large. Lord, please do this work among us and astound us with your power and your grace. We want to plant a flag in the ground today, Lord, and say, we're ready. Please move. I pray in Jesus' name.